Dublin and good morning Los Angeles. I hope it's a clear line for all of you. It's a lovely day here and it looks as if it's quite good in Los Angeles as well. Colin, are you hearing me loud and clear? It's a beautiful morning here. Thank you. Um, well, we have a lot of lawyers listening, so I'm conscious that I have to stick to the programme and stay roughly on topic. But um, I'm going to take the liberty of setting the scene a little bit, if I may. And I know I've warned you already. I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to leave the master out of the conversation. So I may ask you a little bit about that. Tell us, because you and I will remember what Dublin was like in the 1980s, but we're speaking to many members of the young bar who didn't perhaps live through that interesting time that fashion forgot. Um, give us a thumbnail sketch of living in um, Dublin in the 70s in certain and 80s. Ways, in certain ways, it was a bitter time where divisions um, over those issues to do with, say, homosexuality, divorce, contraception, civil liberties in general, that that these these were areas of, I suppose, hot dispute, I suppose, with the abortion referendum being at the centre, where the divisions really were bitter and where obviously the divisions within families, but I mean divisions within the society, where you had doctors and serious doctors and lawyers and serious lawyers coming out in favour of a referendum, which, um, other lawyers and other doctors claimed would be unworkable and unusable. And so that those debates were very large ones. I mean, I remember huge um, crowds in Liberty Hall and various other places. And um, certainly I, I was working as a journalist and um, they, they, there became also a group of people who I suppose were national hate figures who were seen to be on the right, who, who were sometimes doctors, sometimes politicians and sometimes lawyers. And um, so it, it, it was a very uneasy time if you were like me, if you were, say, gay like I am, or if you were liberal like I am, or if you had a lot of friends, you know, has women who were women who were, I mean, absolutely upset about the um, abortion referendum as being the whole idea yeah. of their bodies being used and used politically at certain moments where it looked as though politicians were actually building up a reputation. Um, because of their sort of anti-abortion views. And of course, in the middle of this, there was the North. So, I mean, I'm not going to go on about the North, but, but certainly there was a, there was a, the, the 80s were punctuated by IRA bombs. Um, yeah. Most notably, I suppose, the one in Enniskillen, but, but many other ones as well. So that um, even though the Anglo-Irish Agreement took place in 1985, and e even though it did seem a sort of step forward, it didn't end the violence. And um, so it was a, it was a bitter, difficult time. I mean, it wasn't like this every like that every day. But looking back on it, certainly those were the issues yeah. that preoccupied people, and that people had fierce debates about, you know, at and home and you know, in pubs and and in everywhere. So this was a, a, just to give us a little idea or a flavour of the legal or the political landscape. Just personally, before we and we will certainly be going back to the nineteen eighties because I see that. I think as being formative in terms of your later writing, certainly in the Heather Blazing. Um, but you had spent your early life in Wexford. Anyone who has read the book knows that. And then you've mentioned you were a journalist in Dublin. Uh, you'd also lived in Spain, I think. What country in the 1980s was, was home? Oh, oh, Ireland was home. You know, I, I went to live in Barcelona when I graduated um, in 1985 mm -hmm. and I witnessed the extraordinary change in every single thing in life in Spain because of democracy. Because the idea of the dictatorship ending, we'd put a piece of paper into a ballot box, literally changed the whole atmosphere in the streets. And there was a huge amount of early reforming legislation, which really just, just changed every way people lived in Spain. So I had seen how politics could work. Um, Ireland was home, Wexford was home. So that idea of getting the train out of, used to stop at Weston Row in those years, and just getting the train to Enniscorthy was really a journey home. Um, I mean, like a lot of people in Dublin, I was, I suppose, a culture, an, an outsider. But so um, that's, um, and by, by, by 19, let me think, by 1983, at the age of 27, uh, Vincent Brown, who was, um, who had, who owned McGill magazine yeah. and had edited it for many years, he was going to the Sunday Tribune and he offered me the job as editor of McGill. So that by 1983, that's what I was doing. I was sitting in an, in an editorial yeah. chair 
with a lot of responsibility and um and, you know again the technology was so primitive for the production of magazines it was it was actually paste you were actually using glue to paste the pages down i mean that's almost unimaginable as an idea now but that was the case in yeah. 1983 84 85 I'm, I'm going to come back to that because it i think there's a very very clear link between your work for mcgill and what most and i think yourself you've publicly said that this was a, a a backdrop for the for the scenes in the Heather Blazing. And I do want to come to that. But again, just to stay with the, the background for the moment, because you mentioned the train to Enniscorthy and from reading the Heather Blazing in particular, um, the Wexford countryside appears to be almost a character in the novel. It's it's so detailed in and and the sense of erosion of land by sea and by time. I see it again in the master where uh, Henry James settles in Rye in, in Lamb House. There's another more references to that phenomenon. And, and just before I move to the very core of the, of the book we want to look at, uh, could you say anything about that? Is that something that, that resonates particularly with you? Yeah, the book is set um, in, part of it is set on the Wexford coast and that's real. I mean, that's a Part would go from the Blackwater being the village down to Ballyconagher, Upper Ballyconagher, Lower, Knocknessilog along there. And there is erosion and there has been since I was a kid. It's where you would go down in the summer. I mean, we would we would not be there in the winter. So you'd go down and, for example, in the month of June and suddenly realise that a whole bit of the cliff had fallen in and just gone. My father's first cousin, Dick Whelan, his house fell in. Now that was a big deal if you're a kid, where your your someone's house falls over the cliff into the sea. And so um, I put all that into the book also because it was it was lost in the sense that we didn't go there anymore. It was, a, I think, if you're a novelist, uh, landscape that's gone, that you don't go to anymore, that other has changed fundamentally, that, that that becomes something you can use in a novel. It's almost a way of recovering it as though by writing it, you could sort of get it back. You could slow time down, you could put time back. And so I put that landscape into the book. And can I also ask you, one of my colleagues asked this question and I hadn't thought it through, but I realised I was curious myself. I know the title, The Heather Blazing, comes from Ulla Vogue. And I wondered, was there any particular reason for that phrase and that context of, I think it was Father Murphy's campaign to alert the, the people <laughs> of Wexford to call them yeah. to arms, as it were? Yeah. Um, I liked the sound of the phrase, the Heather Blazing, but <clears throat> it's also ironic. It's, uh, you know, the novel is set in a very, very stable Republic of Ireland. Um, that the chances of, um, um, the, you know, the, the four courts ever being burned again seemed, seemed really remote. And uh, there's a sense of absolute quietness and stability in the Republic of Ireland. And so the title is ironic in the sense that there's there may be heather blazing elsewhere, for example, in the north, <clears throat> and that comes up in the book. But the, there's no heather blazing. Yeah. You know, the, 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 there's a there's a sort of dullness. So it is it is an ironic title in that sense. And it's it's only your second novel, and you're still only in your thirties when you wrote it. And you gave Eamon Redmond your own father, effectively. Elements of him are my father and elements of him are also my own childhood. For example, I use the whole business of being an altar boy, which is mine. Yeah. Um, but my father was involved yeah. with Fianna Fáil. It was, again, it's, a, it's hard to imagine a time when the minister, who was the local TD, was Dr. Ryan. He was the minister for finance. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had been in the GPO in 1916 as a medical student and he was um, TD for Wexford. But he lived in Dalgany, so he didn't live in the constituency. And I don't think he ever appeared much in the constituency. This meant that the, the Fianna Fáil figures in the towns had much more power than they might have had, you know, otherwise. Mm -hmm. And my father was the Fianna Fáil figure in Enniscorthy. And his brother, my, his older brother also, they, they were the stalwarts of the Fianna Fáil party. They're always going to Fianna Fáil meetings. Uh, they weren't at Fianna Fáil meetings, they were at meetings of the Vincent de Paul. And if it wasn't the Vincent de Paul, it was some other thing to, for example, all the stuff about starting the Castle Museum in Enniscorthy happened. And was, I was the child with my father going yes. down to the museum. Um, and um, 
so so all of that is autobiographical. What's what's made up, which is an interesting thing. I, I'm not the only novelist who's done it. Is I have um, I've wiped out the rest of the family, which must be out of some sort of Freudian sort of dream of um, wanting to be an only child. But Eamon is an only child, and so I had um, I had four siblings, and my mother was alive. So I just got for the purposes of the novel, I got rid of all of them. And it was just me and my father. Because by the time I wrote the book, my father was dead. So there was also an element in the book of recovering that, of seeing it, of a way of refining it. Yes. And, and you made him a lawyer and a judge. I did. I um, What happened was that um, I, because I was editing the magazine um, and it was a monthly magazine, I was really busy for two weeks of every month. But the other two weeks, I, it was really quite quiet. and. Um, I needed a big project. So I took on a few for the very beginning, you know, listed what I was going to do over each year. And one project was to write a, to write a history of the Supreme Court for the magazine. And there'd be no problem over length. I think it ended up being 25, 30,000 words. And yes. it was a project I took a year to do. And um, it involved reading huge numbers of judgments. Just there, there, look, there was nothing to go on. No one, no one, you know, Ruan McCormack's book, there weren't books like that. Yes. So um, what I then started to do was to contact um, anyone who would talk to me. So obviously some, some senior barristers at the time were just amazing. They just knew how the whole thing had worked. And of course, it was when it was pointed out to me that there was a huge change in the way the constitution was interpreted. And this change began with the appointment of two judges who had some connections to Fianna Fáil, um, who were Carew O'Dolly and Brian Walsh, and that they had um, initiated, they had, they had asked barristers to the consternation, the question, are there any American priesthoods? <laughs> American priesthoods? Unheard this, of. This is out of circa 1959, 60. No one, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, the questions were always about English law and um, they were the precedents people mentioned were English precedents. And the American Bar Society presented the Irish Bar with the books, with you know, whatever books they were going to need to use American precedent. But this was seen um, by people as a sort of not exactly Fianna Fáil, but a sort of nationalist. It's a way of, we have a constitution. Has anyone read it? Does anyone know what, what is implied in some of its articles? And so a quiet revolution occurred in the way the Irish constitution was interpreted. And that this was done by a sort of new generation of um, judges. And when I saw that, I thought, well, that would be an interesting moment for Fianna Fáil, where it, it, because the bar was so much associated with Fine Gael, um, up to then, you know, that the judges, that, that, that there was a sort of Belvedere to bar library line that would have included a lot of people like Johnny Costello, for example, were um, senior barristers, you know, and um, that didn't happen in the same way with Fianna Fáil. So I became interested in this. I also became interested in the idea of the judgment, of the written judgment, the dissenting judgment, the craft of judgment and the idea, of course, that um, uh, Supreme Court judgment, some of them seem to me to be highly crafted. Um, some of them seem to me to be almost literary in the way they were crafted. There was one judge, Neil McCarthy, who I think enjoyed very much his own prose style, but others of them were very densely argued and they looked to me as though they had gone through a lot of revision. So I'm, so, so I'm interested then in, the, in, in connecting in a way the writing of a novel, which involves a lot of revision, of being at home at night in a room, working something out, revising it. But a second thing interested me, that a novelist, your job is to write the book. It involves a sort of self-suppression in that your opinions don't matter. Don't, don't put your opinions into your book. Give everything to your character. Move away, you know, maintain a distance from who you are to who the protagonist of your book is. And I found in the way that judges would talk is about the a, that they might have very strong views on something personally, but actually the evidence, they would have to look at the evidence given. 
look at the precedents, look at the law, that, that their judgments were not a personal rant, as it were, in the same way as a novelist cannot do a personal rant. These are of no interest. So that I was interested in that idea of the, the self or self-suppression uh, in a way a judgment would be written. So all this began to intrigue me. And this is very interesting to me and a surprise to some extent because I had read of your case uh, in the Supreme Court, Cullen versus Tobin, and presumed, quite wrongly it seems, that this was one of the reasons that drew you to uh, thinking about the law, thinking about the constitution, but clearly this was a process that began long before you yourself um, went to court. Yes, but it was, um, it was exactly, I mean, that, that, that was a key moment where um, this, 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 this is a case to do with a thing called prior restraint. And um, yes. so was, tell the listeners uh, a little sorry, bit about sorry, this because they, they may not know. Yes, it, it, it's um, basically McGill was publishing an article um, about a court case where um, the jury had already decided and there probably was going to be an appeal. But the appeal would be to judges rather than a jury and it would be on matters of law rather than on matters of fact. And so our point was, look, the case, the case is effectively over in the, in, in the sense that not a newspaper or magazine article could not influence judges. Now, we went into the, um, the they, they sought an injunction to prevent publication before publication. Um, the judge decided to give them the, this, this um, injunction, which of course we thought was very serious because obviously it was going to, it was going to, it was going to stop the publication of the magazine two weeks before Christmas, when all the advertising um, was really heavy, where we, we, we really made money on those Christmas issues, which we didn't some other issues. And if we lost uh, one issue like that, it would be a huge blow to us. So we decided to go into the Supreme Court. Now I have to say the Chief Justice was, I believe, was really uneasy about taking it, because he had to take this case really quickly. And we went in and watched, and um, the judges were not flattered at the idea that their views on a matter of law might be influenced by a mere magazine article. So in other words, the first judge had just been appalled in, in a way by the, that he felt the case was still ongoing and the article was, yeah. was, was just, you know, in, at the wrong moment. But the, um, the Supreme Court judges uh, got very, I mean, they really weren't having this for a moment. They, 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 so they lifted the injunction. And of course, I got a sense of them, just the sense of, you know, the Chief Justice in the middle, um, Neil McCarthy was over to his, to his left, watching like a whore, because for him, the idea <laughs> that this article could affect his view was really anathema, you know. And uh, yeah, so that, uh, that was, I mean, I, I hadn't begun to work on the Supreme Court um, article at that point, but it certainly spurred me on. It gave me a real sense. Also, I had to spend a lot of time with lawyers and um, building yeah. up. I mean, in other words, there, was, there, were, there were two intense days where we looked at every yeah. precinct. What was, of course, fascinating was that we um, we, we found um, a huge because it's a huge issue in American law because of American concern with freedom of speech. And we found um, vast precedents for lifting restrictions. Uh, the prior restraint was something American Americans do very, very sparingly. And then, um, but our lawyer, who later became a distinguished judge, I noticed him at a certain point, very early on in the argument, just sitting down, and he didn't speak again. And he left his opponent to be really wiped out by the Supreme Court judges. And he didn't speak again. And afterwards said, I saw we were winning and I thought I'd sit down, which I thought was a marvelous thing to learn, you know, that and despite the huge amount of material he had, he didn't use it. Was that Mr. Mackey by any chance? It was Rex Mackey on the other side. Ah, was, and who, I, I, was, who was your distinguished lawyer? Ah, and Mr. Gagan ah. on our side. Well, that's very interesting. And you have, that is, that's a picture now for many of us who know that the people who are involved and um, Moving then into the, the world of the Heather Blazing, I can see shades and perhaps some pictures that, that were drawn first when you were sitting in court yourself. And um, you describe the lawyers and the judges in, 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 at one point, you describe them as being semi-tribal in their loyalties. Did you get any sense that there were 
barristers or lawyers then that weren't subscribing to a tribe? Did you see um, it being very divided? Um, <laughs> but what, what happened was that I then started to phone individual judges. And uh, one of them took a very dim view of being phoned in his chambers by me and uh, told me, you know, that I really should not phone again. I mean, he was very serious about it. He didn't speak to journalists under any circumstances. What was strange was that others were absolutely friendly, totally open and said, yes, come down and see me. Some of them made absolutely clear in advance, I cannot talk about my career as a judge. I cannot talk about judgments, but I can take you through what happened during my life as a barrister. Um, and um, one or two were actually much more open um, to um, t t telling me anything, really anything I wanted to know. And I realized that within the Supreme Court, there were divisions. There were not huge divisions. I mean, it wasn't like the American Supreme Court. It wasn't at all like that, in fact. Yeah. And, um, you know, as a journalist, you'd be careful not to over not to overemphasize divisions. But um, certainly the um, the issue, and, and I have written about this separately, so it's not a, um, is that um, Brian Walsh was, was was in a very peculiar position at that time because he had agreed, I think, foolishly to become president of the Law Reform Commission. I know the Law Reform Commission is probably very important, but it did not seem so at that time. In other words, its recommendations were in general not being taken, you know, in any way seriously. And he had an office across in Stevens Green, which sort of separated him from the court. Um, and um, he um, he was very gruff. Um, he spoke with a very particular accent, um, which was very far away from the normal barrister tone that I would have associated, say, with Adrian Hardiman. Um, and indeed, Neil McCarthy had a particular barrister tone they used, which was quite, you know, um, let's say posh in, in some way. Brian Walsh's accent was emphatically not that. He sort of mumbled in a sort of um, Northside Dublin accent and then um, he wouldn't realise that what he was saying was so important if he didn't listen really carefully to him. And whereas the others were, you know, Adrian Hardiman um, or, or, you know, um, Neil McCarthy would. Neil McCarthy, when I went to see him, and I think this might be um, useful for people who want to become judges in the future, he, um, he had a very good lunch waiting for me. And um, he said he'd been working hard all morning, uh, that he was writing at Clarehue. And I said, yes, at Clarehue. And he said, um, do you know what a Clarehue is? And I said, I did. And he recited me his Clarehue. A Clarehue is a, it's a short poem which has an intricate rhyming system that must begin with the name of a person. So his was Marcel Proust abused everyone he knew when he wrote A la recherche du temps perdu. And this was a judge, you know, a Supreme Court judge, really amusing himself, in some way at my expense, because I could, you know, so that's what he was like. Um, and the Chief Justice, um, Tom Higgins, was was really very interesting about, you know, his family, and um, but he wasn't ready to talk about judgments. And the issue was that um, Brian Walsh had told me and um, that um, the big question was who would sit in the Supreme Court on the night where Dominic McGlinchey, who was, um, you know, really on the run as a, um, well, it wasn't exactly IRA, but it was sort of worse than the IRA, but he was notorious and he was on the run and he was captured and there was a warrant for his arrest, for his extradition to Northern Ireland. Now, the issue was, of course, he committed crimes in the South as well. What should happen? Chief Justice was emphatic that he should be that he should that he should be extradited because there really was huge pressure from the British and Peter Sutherland as Attorney General that all of them were concerned that the British were were, were actually reading that the, that the South was a safe haven for terrorists and the, the, remember these are the years of Margaret Thatcher and she was really emphatic about this and she was on on the war path and um, so he was captured it was a Saturday and. Um, who was going to sit in the Supreme Court to decide? It was it was it was just to be a three-judge court because it was it was just a, about a, a um, extradition warrant. Mm -hmm. And um, Brian Walsh told me that he had been um, he he had been phoned by the Chief Justice to say was he available, and he had given the Chief Justice his opinion that Dominic Bonetti should not be extradited, and the Chief Justice did not phone him back. 
and there were other judges on the court and Dominic McGinty was extradited, which proved in the end actually wrong because there wasn't actually enough evidence against him in the north. But anyway, my interest, of course, became um, there was one other judge who was important here. It's a judge called Rory O'Hanlon. And he was um, he was he was he was very well known as somebody who was um, really anti-abortion and you know anti any change in the sort of conservative nature of the state. When I phoned him, he couldn't have been friendlier. He couldn't have been nicer. When I went to see him, he could not have been more forthcoming. And there was a moment that really gave me the novel. I think the moment where I really saw the novel was where I'm in his chambers. <laughs> It is the afternoon. He is talking and suddenly his tip staff comes in and says, you, you must come and he puts on his robes and he goes. He leaves me in his room and I'm looking at the window and it's, it's the river and all that. And then he comes back about half an hour later and says that, that, that was just almost speaking to himself. That was a funny case. I would have thought they would have come back with manslaughter. And then he comes on talking, meaning that in the half an hour he was away, someone had been found guilty of murder by a jury and he had sentenced them to life imprisonment which is a mandatory sentence and uh, i realized in my half hour dreaming someone had been sentenced to life in prison a judge you know i thought this is this is this is funny this this, this because he seemed to me so human he was of all of them i think he was the one who was so um friendly and he reminded me of my father and my father's brother those sort of gruff men who could be very gruff in company, very kind to their families, happier with their daughters than with their sons. Um, I could list a whole number of things mm -hmm. and, um, you know, rigorous in the way they, they dealt with work, serious about work and, and about also a sort of loyalty to the state that they didn't even have to mention. It was really believed in Ireland. And um, so, um, in those Almost encounters, with, with, especially with Brian Walsh and Rory O'Hannon, there was a sort of manners question. There was a question of how they conducted with their voices, their gruffness, their their funny friendliness, and their interest in, you know, Brian Walsh would have had an interest in the word liberty. The word liberty mattered in what liberty meant. And um, but of course, both of them were very conservative on the social issues. So I had nothing in common with them before I went into the room. But then yeah. in the room, I did. It, it was very male, a very male environment. Um, you know, do you see much change? Problem she dominated for that reason, yeah. in that, um, you know, she was always available to journalists. She kept her distance in certain ways. Uh, she was formidable, but of course, her knowledge and her intellect were just great, and and so that um, she was. Um, uh, the other thing was, if you wanted to know anything, I mean, if. <laughs> If you were needed a detail, something you couldn't remember, or something you wanted to know, that the person who knew most in Ireland was Jerry Hogan, was Jared Hogan, who at the time was a young academic in Trinity. And That's again, you the call case, him up and say, That's still the case. Yeah, that he just had an extraordinary knowledge. And uh, I mean, this is this is all those years ago. This is what thirty years ago. Is, is it? That's four, this is forty years ago. Um, that he, as a young academic was a walking encyclopedia of knowledge. Well, I'm going to just tell those who are listening that the uh, the report of your case um, in respect of the freedom of the press is in the 1984 edition of the Irish Law Reports Monthly, if anyone wants to look it up. And in the High Court, you were des described as a talented journalist who wrote with verve Yes, that word verve was taken up by Neil McCarthy in the Supreme Court and sarcastically saying the article, I believe, is written with verve. And he used the word verve as being, for, you know, absolute contempt for the idea of verve. I think. Did did your final depiction of Judge Redmond, did he differ from your initial idea of when you set out to write the novel? Did he change as, as you wrote? Um, y yes, I, I, that, that always happens with a book where you have some terrible ideas along the way. And part of the process of writing is not merely that you're writing the novel, you're dropping some terrible ideas. Early on, I had an idea 
that I would make him a sort of hypocrite. You know, that he would be having an affair with someone and he would be doing that at the same time as he was giving judgments about social questions. And I realized that again, this is an idea, you know, don't do that. Give him an autonomy, you know, that let him live. Don't put your own. Oh, you know, if if the idea that if a judge was preaching or if a judge was giving judgments which seemed conservative, he himself would have to have a private life that was in some way hypocritical. That, that's a terrible idea. I mean, I mean, that's just stupid. And don't put it into your novel. So to give him a sort of freedom. And so his relationship to his wife is, I mean, he does care for her in, in a way, but he is distant. And I wanted that idea of his solitariness, of his um, standing apart from other judges even, and of his, you know, going from the forecourt's home, not being clubbable or social, none of that, not being a member of the Stevens Green Club, you know, that world not interesting, golf, for example, isn't his thing, you know, so that he's, he's closer to Brian Walsh in that sense of being socially distant. And I wanted to give him a very rich inner life, a sort of, um, haunted by memories and um but but also in, in the courtroom really formidable i mean really um somebody who really um people feared you know and uh but 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 also um that some of these judgments coming towards him really things that a judge cannot decide on so the big moment was that uh, that idea um I mean, it's in the preamble to the Constitution where the, uh, I think it's mentioned, I think the Holy Family is, is, is the Holy Ghost even gets into the Irish Constitution. Um, that he just is a big moment where he's just trying to work out from where does this judgment come? What are my principles? When I say that, you know, something should happen in, a, in an Irish town, who, what does it come from? Yes, the Constitution, but what does the Constitution come from? What are the principles? What what sort of, um, and um, I mean, is, is there something antecedent? And um, of course he comes across the word God and he writes it and then he crosses it out. And that, you know, for somebody like him, that idea that actually doesn't have there isn't a set of principles before the principles in the Constitution that he can easily refer to. And uh, so I wanted to work all that out. Um, in, in a way, I was, suppose it was a novel about the um, way the Republic of Ireland had formed itself and the way in which it had separated itself from the North. Um, and I was interested in, you know, I suppose someone like T.K. Whitaker being a crucial figure being, you know, the civil servant in the Department of Finance who wrote the Program for Economic Expansion in 1959, but he becomes a, an important advisor to Jack Lynch um, in the 60s about keeping the South out of the North, about making sure your language is never provocative. And Eamon Redmond becomes a crucial figure in advising the government, how do you, how do you keep one country safe from another when the one beside you is burning? And he looks at various um, situations, including indeed Israel. You know, in, in other words, that, that, that he writes them a report, which is to actually just outline the principles in which the Republic of Ireland will, no building will burn again in the Republic of Ireland after the burning of the British Embassy in January or early February 1972. In other words, how did that happen? What was the ideology behind that? So I was, I was sort of teasing out all that um, in the novel as well as teasing out various demons from my own childhood. I think you've spoken about that quite recently, in fact, about uh, describing your father's illness, for, for instance. And you described that in The Master as, I think, making a raid on your own memories. Is yeah, it's an um, important technique for you. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's something I think that every novelist does. I notice, for example, John McGahern, um, that that entire business of, of his mother, um, his mother's death and his father being a policeman or a guard, that that makes its way into so many of the books. So I think there's some writers who do that, who use again and again images from childhood, things that matter, things that keep you awake at night, 
that that they make you make their way into the book and you transform them. It is it isn't therapy. It isn't like going to a psychoanalyst. It's getting them and using them, finding a place for them. So there, there so you have to be quite hard in in, in the way that you work. You know, say, is is this needed here? Not do I need to say this here, but does the book need it? Yeah. And so you work from that. And I, I don't know if this answers the question I had, but it reminds me of a question I had, which was, what is the impact on you of sharing such very, very personal issues so publicly? Um, I, I, I suppose the novel form is a way of trying to get something that's private and make it matter to a reader. So in other words, it, it's a form of communication. Um, so you're not involved in, in entertainment. It's not part of the entertainment industry. That that it does have, I suppose, a moral centre, something to do, uh, offering a paradigm or a set of patterns as to how people how people might live or how people could live. And so you're you're sort of imagining something. Not you've got to be careful that you're not idealising it. Or you're not, especially that you're not sentimentalizing it, that, that you're not just saying, look how sad all this is, look how sorry everyone should be for the character or for me. But you're actually involved um, in, in creating something that is both personal and public and that connects the two and that offers the reader a sort of um, vision of otherness, which again, I think has connections to the law where a, a judge under certain circumstances is actually involved in trying to imagine a set of circumstances on the basis of information given and seeing what it looks like then. Um, in that as a novelist, that, that's, that's what you're doing, that you're sort of imagining a world. The reason you're doing this is that, or the, the, the value of it is that all of us need to imagine not only ourselves, but others. And that this is how our society or everything we do depends on the idea that it, we are not just alone in our lives, living them, but that we can see um, what somebody else, for example, I think the pandemic is a good example of that. And we can actually see that what's happening to others really, really matters in some way in, in a society. So that a novel is, is just one way of enacting that or, or of offering a blueprint for it. I'm, I'm looking, as you speak, I'm looking at one of the very few passages that I had copied to have in front of me as I spoke to you. And it's it's Eamon Redmond's words in, in the novel that it was not his job to decide what certain terms such as the family had meant in the past, it was his job to know what these terms meant now. And, and he seems to be struggling with that for all of the reasons you've outlined. It's it's not a legal decision, it's it's a moral one. And he yes. hasn't any experience of the other family. Yeah, the, um, th this has become a big issue in American constitutional law between Judge Scalia, for example, and um, um, Amy Comey Barrett and other judges, in what tense is the Constitution written? <laughs> if it's written in the present tense, surely it could be interpreted as being present, as being now, so that a word in the Constitution must be interpreted in the light of what that word means now. And the other ones saying, no, no, we have to look at the framers of the Constitution. We have to look at it in Ireland, if it's, if it's Ireland, and we have to look at what a word meant in 1937. Um, other people saying no, no, but, but I, I don't know if that still argument is still going on. But certainly, when when I think with Brian Walsh said to me, you know, the Constitution is written in the present tense. Yeah. Oh wow, that is actually a revelation to me. I didn't know that, and uh, I thought that was um, something I was going to put straight into my book. In other words, you know, sometimes you're like a magpie, you're wandering around trying to see something glittering, and that struck me as a sort of glittering fact transformative in a, in a very conservative legal environment, this could change everything. Yeah, yeah. C can, I, can I tell you, if you didn't know this already, last week, in fact, pretty much at this time last week, the walking encyclopedia that is Gerard Hogan, who has just been appointed to the Supreme Court, um, presented a paper to a number of his colleagues, um, to a number of us. And in that paper, he chose Eamon Redmond 
as the only fictional example he gave as a, of a judge with a dilemma. And he focused very much on the consternation, and that was your word, the consternation it would cause his colleagues if he redefined the family in this, in this judgment. And, and, and the influence that must have had on this fictional judge. As 11 o'clock grew near, he knew that what he had written on the fool's cap pages, that was going to be the judgment he would deliver. And his colleagues would view it as sensible and well-reasoned. Yes, that was um, very much part of, I mean, th this, this book was being written um, in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, I, I was thinking, you know, what, how will this change come when it comes? And it will come, of course, with the redefinition of the, of the word family. And uh, that, um, so, you, you know, what sort of, um, you know, is a mother and a child, the mother not being married? If it doesn't, if that does not constitute a family, how come? Uh, if a widow and a child. So, you know, uh, um, part, part of that reasoning comes from Neil McCarthy's astonishing judgment in the Norris case, where I'm not going to give it to you now, because, but it's um, where he lists what people can do sexually, legally and illegally, and points out the illogic of that. And uh, I mean, it was it was very explicit what he what he said. But I was thinking the same way. Um, who, how do you, how would you redefine a family? And it's, he's almost tempted because he can see the logic of it to do so. So it's that moment where here he is and the logic is leading him here, but he realizes there's something else leading him there. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a drama. I mean, to try and, you see, part of the job in a way in a novel is to try and create drama. If there's no drama, there's no novel. So you have to get two things that oppose each other. And so that trying to get him in the night, thinking about this and make that dramatic and make it also pretty comprehensively for the reader that this would not only change the country, yeah. but it would change the way people see him. And he's not ready for that. He's not. Um, he's not ready. That's 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 but, not really. He's not. He, 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 he's not a. I mean, one of the reasons why he's been appointed to these positions and he's respected in this way is that he's not never going to do anything like that. So, I mean, I'm interested. I was interested in the novel in exploring the conservative mind. Yeah. And finding the very opposite to myself and seeing how that opposite worked, how it lived its day, how he lived his day and, and what he what, what his dilemmas were. Um, so that's really what I was working with. And do you think do you think it's still the case? You don't have to name anybody that we're all appointed because we're not really going to change anything. Um, well, you know, there I suppose um, there there were moments, um, certainly in the early 1960s, when the Supreme Court caused nothing but uh, consternation. Um, with some of its judgments. I mean, in other words, the right to, to, to use um, contraception, you know, the the famous McGee case. Um, but, but also I think the Norris case itself, because it must have disturbed people very deeply, um, what actually happened in the case, which um, people, people will know that it was a, it was a five, it was a three, two judgment, but that the, um, this, the, Chief Justice's judgment used evidence that wasn't actually given to the court and wasn't wasn't tested in the court, and this was pointed out to him by Judge Henshi, who said this is not exactly unprecedented, but it was certainly unacceptable. And uh, so, um, but even the fact that it came so close, and that that would go on to Europe in 1988 and would win in Europe, yeah. that idea of the that these these rights were coming to us via the judges. Um, not via the politicians. Uh, and there, I think there were moments when um, the judges certainly felt the politicians should be taking more active. And Neil McCarthy said this to people. You know, th these are matters for government. Leaving them to the courts is a mistake. But certainly in the, um, the, the issue, say, uh, the question of bail became a huge question in the 1970s. Who got bail and who didn't? And so Oh, they were always saying that this was to do with the Constitution, to do with ideas of Brian Walsh would have talked about the ideas of liberty in the Constitution. The idea of what he would have, what he said, I remember him saying to me, was that the idea of innocence before guilt, it, it's not just a formula, it's actually.
active. It actually literally means something. And if you do that, then the question of bail becomes, you know, interesting because you say, well, why should someone not? Anyway, you, you, you know the arguments. And um, th these were fascinating arguments. I'm tempted to laugh now because some of those listening will probably know I'm sitting in the bail list at the moment, Colm. So oh, well, I'm well, very I'm, live, I'm very live to the heart <laughs> every week. I mean, I'm really I talking mean, about the principles uh, that govern this. I know. And as you know, because Mr. Justice McCarthy said it back in 1984, a, a mere journalist wouldn't influence me anyway, as you can imagine. Yeah. But he did, he said, a, a, a world renowned a world-renowned novelist might have more sway, so I better not listen to any of your arguments in, in respect of bail. <laughs> um, can, I, can I ask you, I'm conscious of time, and I really would like, there are a few other things I'd really like to ask about, and I know there have been some questions uh, coming in, uh, some of which I think I've, I've dealt with to some extent. Um, I, I'm very conscious of, uh, I, I, I reread The Master when I knew I was going to have this privilege, and um, it begins, as you probably remember, with a powerful and very painful description of this wonderful novelist having a foray into the theatre, into the world of the theatre, which ends disastrously. Sorry, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read it. Terribly sorry. You're going to have to read it anyway. Um, but you have now, with your experience, I think, with Brooklyn, at least, if nothing else, you've had a taste of that um, idea. I think Henry James is very drawn to the theatre, the idea of moving from what he calls the grim satisfaction, in your in your words for him, the grim satisfaction of fiction, moving into the immediacy and movement of theatre. And of course, he's gutted effectively when, when this does not work out. It's a, it's a really harrowing beginning to any novel. Tell me a little bit about your experiences coming into the, the world of film. Um, well, the, the um, I didn't write the screenplay for Brooklyn. Um, it was written by Nick Hornby, and this meant that when Nick Hornby was nominated for an Academy Award, um, you know, with, with Sir Sharon and all the others, he could go in one door, which was the red carpet. And uh, mm -hmm. but I was just a novelist, and um, I was to sit at the back, so I went in another door of the Academy Awards. And um, you know, it was it was it was certainly as though this this is what Hollywood thinks about novelists. But there there, there was another moment where I had a play that opened on Broadway. And um, this was after I had written the account of Henry James's humiliation um, in, in the theatre. And um, there was a party afterwards in Sardis, which is where the parties are held for opening nights. And one moment I'm, I'm with my back to the door and there's a crowd behind me. And there was a lot of people in the room. And in one five minutes, when the New York Times review comes in and it isn't great, the room clears. New Yorkers simply go home. They don't wait. They don't say good night, they just go. So when I turned and looked, I said, everyone behind me is gone. What, what's happened? And so I said, well, the review, the review has come out, the review. And so I think if you're a novelist where you work three or four years on something and a novel is reviewed maybe 30, 40 times so that you get a, a variety of responses to the book and a book, no matter what you do with it, has a life in libraries in people's bookcases, but it's, it's, or in bookshops, it's never going to go. Whereas the theatre will literally disappear. It's like breathing on glass and you just wipe it and it's gone. So the difference between the two is enormous. And I think that any novelist, I don't know a novelist who has gone into the theatre and come out happily. It's a, bru it's a bruising experience. And I think Hollywood is the same, that um, it's, uh, it's not for us, you know, and uh, um, it, it was a very funny night because we were so close to the door that every time there was a break, and there were breaks every five minutes for ads, you could go out and they had, they had little glasses of um, white wine waiting for you <laughs> each time. And um, so it was, um, it, it was, uh, I, I mean, there are other things you realise, just for, for one night I got what maybe a lot of people who work in Hollywood get. I was told that my car, I had a for the entire night until I was ready to go home that I could, you know, it was from five o'clock in the afternoon until five o'clock in the morning. I had a driver waiting for me anywhere I wanted to go. And of course, I immediately said, well, could we go to Mexico? <laughs> could we go, this is Los Angeles, <laughs> could we go to Mexico? I can't, can't I, I, go, I drive through the night, you know, and uh, but it was good because we could go to various parties and uh, he could wait for me outside and it was like being a star. But then, of course, in the morning you woke up and you realise you're back in the business of 
you know, a novel is, is a thousand details. <laughs> when you're back with your yeah. thousand details. And you, funny to listen to you describe it, it, it seems you remind me of your description of Henry James. Did you identify with him very strongly? Um, I think the idea of becoming middle-aged and spending a lot of time alone and um, you know I was using I was using my own life in certain ways you know and mm -hmm. uh, um, so yeah there, there, there are elements there but um, he, there's also a sense of him that, that I was trying to work with of how much fierce energy he has there's a sense almost of physically setting settling down to work but um yeah yeah i used bits of myself in that but there was, there was so much information available about henry james with so many biographies and letters and so it was it was it was, a, it was lovely because you felt you could do a lot of research and it was very useful it's yeah. good but the personal of course is in my view certainly what made the book such a memorable one and such a and such an enjoyable one. It, it becomes more personal to write it in that way. And and speaking of our personal, again looking at Eamon Redmond, that perhaps is another uh, reason for the success of the of the ideas behind the Heather Blazing and the success of the, the the full novel is that you had so much that was part of your own life that made it very real. Yes, it was I, I was was brought up by, by in a world where a lot of older men were grumpy. It was part of the deal. If the, if the women were all talking and there was a lot of um, excitement over the smallest thing if an aunt came to visit. But if an uncle came to visit, he could sit in the back room smoking and talking about some goal that had been scored on Sunday. And it would be pretty dull stuff. And there would be an element of, especially in relation to children, of those men being grumpy. And that obviously interested me as I mean, what is the inner life of a grumpy man like? And did you, having having written the book and having the relationships you've described with various judges and barristers, did a very good question has come in from David Davenpower here. Did the process of writing this book change your view of judges generally? Um, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, the um, I suppose I, I did get to think a, a lot about the um, uh, about the levels of power. One of the funny things that happened with the book was that um, judges started to read it, and so I got a, got a, um, Anthony Kennedy from the American Supreme Court got in touch with me, and we had supper in in Washington. And um, of course, I realized as I was talking to him that he was the man who had decided. Gore Bush, you know, that, that he, his, his was the vote that gave the presidency to George W. Bush, but also his was the vote that that meant that any any law, state law against um, homosexual acts was prohibited by the Supreme Court. And, and that was his thing. So when I asked him, you know, that question you asked, what, what's the judgment that you most care about, that you most want your legacy? He said, oh, the gay one, that, that, that judgment is mine. But I wanted to say, well, how do you feel about George W now, now that, you know, but in other words, you're, you're dealing with, in a way, sometimes ordinary people. I mean, he wasn't that evening. I wasn't with somebody who was struck me as exceptional in any way. But he had a, this, a, a, a key moment, this astonishing amount of power, um, which resulted in A, the election of W, but also the striking down of all the anti-gay yeah. stuff that was in very conservative states. So um, that idea of power, um, which in a way a politician doesn't have, you've always got to worry about the constituency. And a judge does have because there really isn't a constituency there. You know, that's the whole yeah. point of the independence. And um, so, uh, yeah, also, I suppose I felt that um, there, there, we don't think about it enough, but the Republic of Ireland has been a sort of success. And part of the success, I mean, success in the sense that it's a stable society in which people really do believe in its institutions. I think we saw this during the pandemic where people really will listen to somebody who won't believe that no one thinks that someone in the health area is being paid by the pharmaceutical. No one thinks that. 
in the same way as I never came across ever, I don't think, anyone talking about corruption in the judiciary. You know, you know the Republic of Ireland is a, is a funny sort of decency and stability. And uh, in a way, that's what the head of Lazian was trying to tease out and dramatise. And can I ask you, do you think, I, I, this may be obvious to others, but I, it, it makes me curious, Eamon Redmond, having rebuilt his relationship with his daughter, having welcomed his little grandson into his life, the very last scene, he's in the sea with this little boy. Do you think he would have written a different judgment at the end of the novel? Um, yeah, there is an element of him softening and of him seeing things differently. So there is a sort of change. I think the change comes with his daughter coming to stay and with him having to see the world through her eyes. And um, yes, yes, he becomes a sort of, he becomes a sort of kinder, gentler figure. And yes, that, that, that is just possible in, in those cases about, um, you know, per, per person, what rights an individual has. Um, that yes, 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 he might change. I think you can't really write a novel about a character who's not willing to change. You, you have to dramatise that idea of the personality being dynamic. Uh, I, th I think that has to be there. What kind of a judge would you have made, Colin, do you think, had your career been a different one? Um, I, I mean, I really, um, uh, um, I suppose, was part of that generation that came to view what Mary Robinson was doing and saying as being really important and that if the constitution, if the, since the politicians couldn't move, then the, then the, the, then, then the law would have to be, you know, we'd have to have recourse to the law. But um, I am, um, I, I really, really worry now um, about the prison system. Obviously, I'm in the United States where it's so overused. It, it is it is scandalous. And the way the prisons are run here in America is scandalous. And I do wonder if the prison system, the way of locking people up, is left over from some sort of medieval mindset where, where you know, and that um, we, we are going to have to look at it again because, uh, I mean, if you look at if you look at it not as a lawyer, but as a sociologist, it is the poor who tend to be sentenced to more than the rich. And if that's the case, then that system doesn't work. And, and I, I, so I would, I'm, I'm afraid my politics are so liberal on this question of prison. I, I just find the idea of it um, repulsive and I think it should be used very sparingly. Um, so I would be, I mean, I think I would not get appointed. Actually, I think that's the answer to my question. How much of uh, how much of that view might come from having witnessed what you saw in Spain and the, what you called effectively the birth of democracy there, watching votes being cast? How formative um, was that? Yeah, that 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 it gave you a sense um, that I suppose um, the the Spanish Revolution and the Portuguese Revolution both were about personal rights, about they really changed the lives of women and indeed children and gay people, that, that, that it wasn't merely about um, the right to vote or the, you know, that, or, or, or the right to um, not get beaten up by the police, but it, but it actually changed the sort of gender war became part of the um, big issues there. So I suppose I, I, I thought that was important in Ireland and hadn't really, that, that it looked as though the women's movement was a sort of a marginalised movement. But of course it moved to the centre, but it took a long time. Indeed, indeed. And I'm, I'm just seeing, to my great amusement column, someone has asked, what does Judge Geerty think of Eamon Redmond? <laughs> I must say, I, I rather liked him. Uh, Nolene Blackwell has asked that question, and I think it's hard not to like him. Certainly by the end of the novel, as you say, Colm, he has grown, and it's, it's very hard to live with someone and have seen his childhood and yeah. not sympathise with the man who wants to write a braver judgment, but feels he can't. That, yeah. that was my, yeah. that was my lasting impression of Eamon Redmond, but I really did like him. Um, so he's a, he's a mixture of people, as I understand it, Colin. Is that a, a reasonable? Yes, it's more, but it's, but it's more, he's, he's, I imagined him. And I gave him, as I say, my father, myself, 
Um, but I was using things I had seen and heard from various judges that I went to see for the purposes of journalism. Lovely. I'm going to I'm going to bring us to a close now because I'm conscious of time. This has given me great joy. I must say this conversation. It's been such a pleasure just to hear you and uh, to have the privilege of, of asking you some questions. Um, I just want to say thank you, obviously, to the, the, the organisers and in particular to Anita Panook and to Catherine Needham and all of the Young Bar Committee who invited me to, to, to do this, gave me this great privilege. Thank you. Uh, Aoife Canarney for the technical support. I'm coming through on a phone that is presumably also taking messages. I don't know how bad the sound has been for you, but for me it's been excellent, so I hope it has been good for everyone else. But above all, Colm, thank you once again for agreeing to an interview at all, but particularly at 9am, as I believe it is there. <laughs> so you're Thanks bringing a ray of a ray of sunshine, not just from Los Angeles, but from Wexford, I think very definitely. I think of it as, as I speak to you now, and, and it really reminds me of the, the beautiful, beautiful passages. You're a, you're a board fault to add, let's face it, for, for Wexford in particular, and we're very, very proud of you. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Judge Thank you, everyone, for attending. Thank you.